Matthew chapter 25, and we're reading from verse 14. Jesus says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold bought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm a maths teacher in a secondary school in Coventry. And at the moment in school, we are expecting the most dreaded thing in school, an Ofsted inspection. Uh, apparently, we're due one any day now. Um, but, you know, I've been working there for four years. And for the last four years, the message has always been... Um, you know, we don't do things for Ofsted, we, but we do things for the children, which you know, is a good thing to say, and it's a good, thing to, good way to be. Um, but now, we are expecting Ofsted. Everything's suddenly changed, and um, everything is about getting ready for Ofsted. You know, any day they could pick up the phone and phone our school and say, we're coming tomorrow, um, and we need to be ready. So books need to be marked, classrooms need to be tidy, Paperwork needs to be ready, uh, and the list goes on. Um, and, you know, in our maths department, we even have a folder on our shared documents called Ofsted Ready. Um, and it's all with the hope of being judged outstanding as a school. You know, the, the, the threat of judgment uh, means there's action, and we're ready. And, you know, the panic button's been hit to some extent uh, because we know that they are coming any day, and everything has been put in place to make sure we are ready. And uh, as John reminded us last week, uh, in Scripture we have a similar warning of judgment. We are told that Christ will 
come any day. And the message is, we need to be ready. Christ is coming, and we need to be ready. Um, But unlike Ofsted, there's no time when he's due, and there's no day's warning to get things in order. It says in Matthew 24, he will come at an hour when you do not expect him. We need to be ready at all times. And that's the theme of Matthew 24 and 25, as um, John uh, did the start of Matthew 25 last week. But I thought it would be helpful um, just to rewind a little bit and set a bit more context. So uh, have in mind what John spoke about last week. But Matthew 24, um, in Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching that he will come again to earth and to ju- and judge. And the main message behind all the intricacies is this. Be ready for that day. So Matthew 24:42 says, "Therefore keep watch, because you do not de- do, do not know on what day your Lord will come." And, and then a couple of verses later in verse 44, it says, "So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him." The message is clear. He is coming. Be ready. He is coming. Be ready. And in some ways, Matthew 24 doesn't go much further than that. But in chapter 25, we have three parables that tell us what it means to be ready. And in each one of those parables, there are two types of people being described. Um, One type that are ready and one type that are not Um, So in the first parable, the one that John took us through last week, we have the ten virgins, of whom five are wise and five are foolish. The wise prepare for the day, the foolish leave it too late. And John took us through that last week. In tonight's parable, we have the parable of the talents or the bags of gold. We have the good and the faithful on the one hand who are ready versus the wicked and the lazy on the other hand who are not ready. And then the third parable in the chapter is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in that chapter, we have those who are described as blessed versus those who are described as cursed. And I want you to see that in all of these sets, these people are one and the same. We have the wise, who are the good and the faithful, who are the blessed. We have the foolish, who are the wicked and lazy, who are the cursed. And these three parables are placed deliberately one after the other in Jesus' teaching. And actually, if you look at that table, there's, there's progression here. Um, so if you look at the descriptions of the people, the descriptions start off as sort of a mindset. So we've got the wise and the foolish, now their, mind, their mindset. And then tonight's parable, it moves on really to their lifestyle. We've got the good and the faithful against the wicked and the lazy. Before finally, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, moving on to their state before God, we've got the blessed against the cursed. And Jesus here is is really turning the screw to emphasize the point that we all need to be ready. So how does this parable teach us to be ready? We're going to split into two main points, really. One, how can we be ready for that day? And two, what will happen on that day. So firstly, how we, can, how we can be ready. Secondly, what will happen? So let's have a look at this parable. And uh, the focus of this parable is a master and his servants. 
Uh, and the master has gone away, and he's entrusted sums of money to different servants, expecting them to trade with them and to make more money. And a long time later, he returns and uh, settles accounts with the three he gave money to. Um, and in these parables, it's, it's important to see uh, who these people represent. And really, the master is a picture here of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone away, and one day he will come back and call us to account. We will settle accounts with Christ. Um, in Luke's gospel, in, the in a parallel passage, the master is described as a noble going away to be crowned king. And then he returns as king. It's Christ. And the servants, well, they show us what we might be like. And as I said earlier, there are the faithful and the wicked. Two were ready, one was not. So what can we do to be ready? And firstly, the first thing we can do to be ready is we be ready for Christ's return by, first of all, knowing your master. We are ready for Christ's return by knowing your master. Now, if you were to read the very first, the first two verses of this parable, I wonder what your opinion of the master would be. So you just read the very first, the first two verses. And if you, if you were to read them, you would say, well, you couldn't come to any other conclusion than that he is good and generous. Um, so he's going away for some time, uh, but instead of taking his money with him and keeping it close to him, he entrusts it to these three servants. And I might be wrong here, but it seems to me like he has entrusted all of his money to these three servants. It describes it as his wealth, which suggests the lot. But whether it is or not, uh, whether or not it's all of his property, we can still see that he does not hold back. To the first, he gives five uh, bags of gold or talents. To the second, he gives two. And to the last, he gives one. Uh, and if we're thinking that actually that last one, he's um, not given very much. Well, let me correct you of that thinking because um, a conservative estimate, I've had, read, read a few estimates for what a, this bag of gold would sum to, but a conservative estimate is 20 years of uh, wages for a labourer. So maybe the equivalent of £400,000 in today's money. Incredibly generous. And if that's the one servant, the first servant has got 100 years wages. That's more than two lifetimes worth of work. Incredibly generous. He is a good master. But he's also fair, isn't he? He gives according to eat to his ability, as it says. He gives um, the, the bags of gold each according to his ability. He doesn't give overly to those who couldn't manage, and he doesn't give stingily to those who could cope. He is fair. The overriding message uh, that Jesus is getting across here as he describes the master is that he is good. This master is good. Uh, and remember that this master is a picture of Jesus himself, who we know is good, who gives us so much. This master is good and fair. Um, and two of these servants understand this perfectly. So when the master does come back, 
uh, these servants speak with uh, reverence and affirm that he is good. They both say, this is verse 20 and 22, they say to their master, Master, you entrusted me with five or two bags of gold, saying, yes, you are a good master. You have given us so much. They know him. And yet, despite the picture being painted by Jesus of this good master, the third didn't know him. He didn't know him as good and fair. See, when the master comes to the third servant, he shows that he does not know his master at all. What does he say? He describes him as a, as a hard man. Verse 24, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. What this servant is saying is, no, actually, you're not good. You're hard and you are unfair rather than good and fair. It's a completely diff different description of this master than we had in verses 14 and 15. He doesn't know him at all, does he? And you may say that the way the master applies to this third servant actually affirms that, you know, he's saying that to the third servant, yeah, you're right, because he agrees. But actually he doesn't. You know, interestingly, he never affirms. So the, the third servant says, you are a hard man. The master never agrees with it. If you look in verse 26, he never says, yeah, I'm a, I am a hard man. You know I'm a hard man. He never says it. Um, but you may go to say, actually, well, he does say, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and so on. But actually, he's not affirming that either. What he's doing there is, he's using the servant's own words to condemn him. He's saying, if that really is who I am, then you should have done this. You should have invested with the bankers. Even uh, your excuse exposes you even more. So this third servant well, he doesn't know his master, and therefore he's not ready. Um, there is some debate as to whether this servant, the third one, is representing all unbelievers, or whether he's rep representing Christians who do not live a life devoted to Christ. Um, my view is that the first option seems more likely for a couple of reasons. Firstly, as we've just said, he doesn't know his master. And secondly, the destination that is described for this servant in verse 30 is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A description used elsewhere of a place of judgment. The Christian will never face this judgment. So I, I, I think this, this third servant is representing those who do not know Christ. But whether I'm right or not on that point, it is clear that this servant doesn't know him fully. And he's not ready for Christ's return. To be ready for Christ's return, firstly and most importantly, know your master. You need to know the master. Friends, to be ready for Christ's return, you need to know Christ himself. And John really helpfully reminded us last week that in each of these parables, from the outside, it looks like this servant might know his master, but he doesn't. The virgins last week, from the outside, it looked like they would all be welcomed into the wedding feast. 
but five of them weren't. Last week, it was five out of ten who were, t- who, who were told that the bridegroom never knew them. This week, one out of three are ejected from the master's presence. How many in this room? From the outside, we may look like we all know Christ, that we are all secure, but are we? Friends, do we really know Christ? Do you know him through faith in his saving work on the cross? Have you been reconciled to him through the forgiveness that his blood offers? Because naturally, we are enemies of God. We can only be brought near through the blood of Christ. If you do not know him, there is no way that you are ready for his return. So firstly, to be ready for his return, we need to know Christ. We need to know your master. But secondly, to be ready for Christ's return, we all need to be using our resources to further God's kingdom. Being ready for Christ's return is not just knowing Christ, although that is the most important thing. And I think we as Reformed uh, believers can easily leave it at knowing Christ and we're okay. Because we know it's by grace alone, it's not by works, as Joe so helpfully reminded us earlier. But this passage is saying more than that. Yes, ultimately, we are ready if we know Christ. But it also teaches us that to be ready for Christ's return, we need to be using what Christ has given us to further God's kingdom. See, the majority of this story is the master meeting his servants again and settling accounts with them. He is interested in what each servant has done with the money that was entrusted to them. Um, And at this point, I think it's important to understand what these bags of gold might represent. Uh, Because if we don't understand that, then we don't understand what it means to put his money to work, as it describes the first servant doing. Um, The master here has given his servants all the resources they need to make profit. Think, um, if you watch Dragon's Den, often the business, uh, the entrepreneurs come in, they've got this great idea, but they don't have any resources. What do they come in for? They come in for money, because they need the money to make their business work. It's a little bit like that. But what are these resources uh, representing here? And, And again, there is some debate as to whether it represents one specific thing or whether it can be interpreted more broadly as anything that God has given us that can be used for the further, furtherance of his kingdom. And I think uh, J.C. Ryle puts it really helpfully when he says this, quite a long quote, uh, but it, this is what he says. Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all our talents. And then he goes on to say, whence came these things? What hand bestowed them? Why are we what we are? Why are we not worms that crawl on the earth? There is only one answer to these questions. All that we have is a loan from God. We are God's stewards. We are God's debtors. Let this thought sink deeply into our hearts. 
Ryle there is saying, actually, these, uh, these talents is anything. The list was more or less endless. It, it was a long list that Ryle gave. And he's saying all of that is to be used for God. It has come from God. It is to be used from God. And that's what the master here expects. He's given his servants money, and he expects them to make more, to expand his wealth, or for us, to further God's kingdom. We have been given so much by God, haven't we? That list, just, if you can't remember it, read it, J.C. Ryle. (laughs) We've been given so much, and we should be using it for his kingdom. That's what it means to be ready. We are ready by being diligent. And notice how diligent these good servants were. It says of the first servant, the man who had received the five bags went at once and put his money to work. There was no thought of, oh, it could wait until tomorrow with this servant. No, he was living with the thought in his mind that his master could return any minute. And shouldn't that be our attitude as well? Yes, as John reminded us last week, we should be prepared to wait for a long time. And we have had to wait for a long time. This servant had to wait for a long time too. But at the same time as being prepared to wait for a long time, we should be living in the knowledge that he could return any day. It could be tomorrow. It could be tonight. Let's get to work at once, like the faithful servants. So to be ready for Christ's return, firstly, we need to know our master. We need to know Christ. Secondly, we need to be using the resources he has given us for the furtherance of his kingdom. So we've seen how this parable teaches us to be ready for that day, uh, both by knowing our sins forgiven and by living a life devoted to the Lord Jesus and to his work for his glory. And now we turn our attention to what this parable teaches us about what will happen on that day. Uh, And maybe there are some people here, uh, after going through all of that, think, well, uh, there's no need to be ready. Maybe you don't see Christ as your master, and therefore you don't think he'll come again. But hopefully, as we go through this, what will happen on that day, it might show you why we need to be ready for it. So, three things that will happen on that day. Firstly, on that day, we will all have to give an account. We will all have to give an account. The main section of the parable is taken up by the servants giving an account of what they have done. It's verses 19 through to 30, all giving an account. And and as the master returns, there's only really one thing on his mind, to settle accounts with them. That's all all we're told about the master as he returns. It seems the whole purpose for returning is to settle accounts with his servants. And that will happen to each one of us on the day Christ returns. He will come and we will stand before him and say what we have done with the time and the resources that he has given us. We will all have to give account to God. And notice a couple of things here. Firstly, When we give an account, it is an individual thing. We do not give an account as a group. 
the three servants don't come together and say, you've given us eight talents, we've gained seven more. No, they come individually. It will not be, when Christ returns, that Emmanuel Church will be called up together to say how we have served collectively in Leamington. It won't be like that. No, it is individually. We will all have to give an account for ourselves. So we will need to give an account saying what we have done with what we have been given. And ultimately, that will be what we have done with Christ. Do we know him? But it will also be how we have lived for him if we do know him. How have we used our resources to further God's kingdom? We will all have to give an account. That's the first thing that will happen on that day. Secondly, we will all face the judgment of God. We will all face the judgment of God. Each one of the servants hears the judgment from the master. For the first two, it's a commendation. For the last one, it is a condemnation. And in each of these judgments, they have the same structure, actually. They're all split into three parts. The first two are identical. The third one is different. But the the parts are the same for all three uh, judgments. And in each of them, they start with the master stating to each servant who they are and what they are like. They all start with, his master replied, and then the statement. For the first two they hear some of the most glorious words and precious words in the Bible. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's a statement of who they are and what they are like. They are good and faithful. And ultimately, that opening statement will determine our destination. When we stand before God on that day, who we are is what matters. And what I mean by that is, on whose merit are we trusting? How can I possibly stand before God and think, yes, I'm good and faithful? I can't. But I'm not trusting in my own merit. I'm trusting in Christ's. There's no way by myself I can receive that commendation of good and faithful servant. But I'm trusting in Christ. The third is told that he is a wicked, lazy servant. It couldn't be much different, could it? Good and faithful to wicked and lazy. But the important thing to see is the character comes first. Because the second part of the judgment, which is what, we have, uh, what they've done, it, well, it flows out of the character. Both of the first two servants are commended for their faithful acts. They've been described as faithful and then commended for being faithful, their faithful acts. The third is condemned for his laziness, verses 26 and 27. He's condemned less for what he has done, but more for what he hasn't done. He is so lazy that he wouldn't even invest the money to gain interest, showing that he doesn't care for the master at all, reinforcing the point that he is wicked and lazy. We are all going to face the judgment of God. And oh, that he would say of all of us, well done, good and faithful servant. There couldn't be better words to hear, could there? So we're all going to 
um, give an account. We're all going to face God's judgment. And then thirdly, which is the third part of the judgment really, we are all going to receive our just rewards. We're all going to receive our just rewards. And what great awards await the faithful. It says of the two faithful servants, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. What a reward. And the point here is that the faithful are rewarded and rewarded generously. Not only do they get given great responsibility and position, but they also get given way more than they could ever have expected. They get told, come and share in your master's happiness. All the good things that the master has are shared with these servants. And where does the master's happiness come from? What is the master's happiness? Well, is it not the fellowship of the triune God? And isn't that our reward for the faithful that we share in the fellowship of the triune God? What a reward that is for the faithful. That is the believer's reward, sharing in Christ's happiness. But the other end, there is the wicked servant. What happens to him? Well, even what he has is given to the first servant. Again, emphasizing the generosity and overwhelming grace of the master. And then the third servant is cast outside. He is excluded from the master's happiness. Earlier we saw the progression in Matthew 25 in the descriptions of the two types of people. And I think it's useful to see the progression in the destinations of those people too. So I think the table will come back up. Uh, For the first type of people, if you can read that, it's a little bit smaller. For the first type of people, it starts with being welcome at the wedding feast in the parable of the ten versions. Moving on to sharing in your master's happiness. So it says, come and share in your master's happiness. And then listen to this description in the last parable. This is Matthew 25, 34. Uh, Jesus says, come you who are blessed by my father. Listen to this. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. What a reward. What a destination. It's amazing, isn't it? But then the second type of people... Well, that starts with being barred from the wedding feast, uh, moving on to being thrown out and cast into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the third parable, this is verse 41, says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, we're not just barred from the wedding feast. You think, oh, you can get over that. We're not just cast out from the master's happiness, but cast into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But friends, that is how this world will end. That is the destination for each one of us, one of those two. Get ready now. Friends, do you know the master? Do you know Christ? And if you don't think you are ready, please do come and speak to me or Joe or someone else you know. And we'll talk to you and help you to see how, what it means to be ready for that day. As we close, I want to make one other point of application. Throughout the sermon, really, I've been applying it to non-Christians primarily. 
But here I want to talk to believers, specifically in the room, and it's very simple. The parable calls us to work well for the Lord. God will judge our works as well as whether we have trusted in Christ or not. That's what this parable teaches. So the question is, what are we doing for the Lord? What do you devote your energies to? Are we like the first servant who went out immediately to further the wealth of his master? Or are we like the third servant and we bury the good things that God has given us or even use them for our own satisfaction? As C.T. Studd put it, only what's done for Christ will last. And as I close, let me quote this chorus, which is based on another quote by Studd. And let's make this our prayer. It says, when I am dying, or when Christ returns, maybe, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. I shall not worry, though the way has been rough, that thy dear feet led the way is enough. I shall not worry whatever I gave of time or money, one soul to save. When I am dying, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee.